1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
0: You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team machine. Team capitalism. Team algorithm. Team no team. I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, founder of iobi.org the In Our Backyard collaboration and co-funding platform, Erin Barnes.
1: Real change is very importantly done in person. And when people come together to work on solving problems and make collective impact together, it makes a big difference. I like to think of IOB as a tool for people to do that.
0: Erin will be explaining how to unleash the power of local solidarity. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. And I'm on Team Human. I've been thinking a lot lately about how human inventions often end up at cross purposes with their original intentions, or even at cross purposes with we humans ourselves. It's as if after an idea or an institution has been running for long enough, it gains so much influence and inertia that it changes the basic landscape. So, Instead of existing to serve people in some way, people end up spending their time and resources serving it. Things reverse, and the original subject becomes the new object. Or, as we might more effectively put it, the figure becomes the ground. This idea of figure and ground was first posed by a Danish psychologist in the early 1900s, he used a simple cardboard cutout to test whether people see the central image or whatever's around it. And we know the experiment as that drawing that can be seen as like a white vase if you look in the middle of the image, or as two black faces in profile if you look more on the periphery. This is the psychologist Edgar Rubin's idea. And it was his model of perception that's been really useful to psychologists who were attempting to understand how the brain identifies and remembers stuff. But what fascinates people to this day is the way this perception of figure versus ground can change in different circumstances and cultures. So when shown a picture of a cow in a pasture, most Westerners will see a picture of a cow. Most Easterners, Asians, on the other hand, will see a picture of the pasture. (laughs) These perceptions are so determined, in fact, that people who see the figure may be oblivious to major changes in the background. So they'll show a Westerner picture of a cow and have it on grass in one picture or in woods in another picture, and people won't remember where the cow was. They'll just know I saw a cow. And people who see the ground may not even remember what kind of animal was grazing there. And it's not that either perception is better or worse. So much is incomplete in itself. You know, if the the quarterback sees himself as the only thing that matters, then he's going to miss the value of his team, the ground in which he's functioning. Or if a company's human resources officer sees the individual employee as nothing more than a gear in the firm, then she's going to miss the value of the particular person, the figure, the employee, who should be considered one of the principal players and stakeholders in the enterprise. So when we lose track of figure and ground, we forget who's doing what for whom and why. The roles of figure and ground can get reversed leading to situations where the tail is wagging the dog. We can end up enslaved to a system as our original long-term goals become the mere means to someone or something else's ends. Learning to distinguish the figure from the ground offers us a way to see how a system or institution of our own invention can end up working against its greater purpose, as well as what it would take to make things right. Someone who's really accomplishing that, who's really flipping the script on various systems where the figure and ground have gotten reversed, is Aaron Barnes, the founder of In Our Backyard. So pretty much everybody knows about NIMBY, this whole not-in-my-backyard thing, like, oh, they're going to put, you know, a... facility for special needs children. It's like, oh, I believe in that, but not in my backyard. <laughs> and um, what you're doing is kind of flipping the script on NIMBY mm-hmm. with, in our backyard, IOB? That's right, yeah. And then, so how did you think of it? And what's, I guess, for for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, what's kind of like the user scenario? How would someone engage with this platform and and do something with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that Most of us are very busy. We've got families and work and a lot of stress. And most people don't actually want to spend like whatever free time they have and rest in their lives engaging in civic life. Right. You have to have a lot of motivation to suddenly step out and be part of the public civic life. And typically when people do that, it's because they're very, very upset about something that's happening that's wrong in their community. And so it makes for a lot of angry people in this typical NIMBY sort of way. And I think what IOB is interested in doing is creating a space for people who have an idea for positive solutions in their community where they're coming with positive energy and they want other people to be involved and they want to work towards something good but there's not a ton of space for that right like some people they're like oh yeah like i see a little thing in my neighborhood that i could i could change like this vacant lot it sort of it sort of looks a little bit messed up and i could clean it up and make something better and then you try to figure out how you would go about that and so you'd say like oh maybe i have to go to the community board or city council or or something like that and it's confusing as a process. And so every step you try to take to do something positive, you usually get hit with either something frustrating or a no. And so IOB is a place where you can go and you can say like, I actually have an idea. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next, but I need some encouragement. And I need a little bit of help along the way. And so IOB is there to sort of say like, if you've got an idea, we'll take you through the process of funding it and planning it out and then implementing it.
0: So then what's what's an example of a kind of project that's gone through there and worked?
1: So there's a bunch of different kinds. Everything that happens in public space, basically. So one type of project that I really love is a lot of downtowns and cities have business areas that have gone under deterioration in the last 40 years. So people want to bring more foot traffic to where they're trying to get some new businesses to start up. So a few people have used using protected bike lanes as a way of bringing slower foot traffic into areas. A couple places might say, like, oh, instead of going to the city and saying, like, let's install a protected bike lane with the city. And it's a it's a big project. It'll take a lot of capital. It'll have to go through a bunch of review processes. Instead, they'll just do a pop-up bike lane. So maybe for, like, eight hours one day, they'll put, like, a row of cones out or some type of barricade, and they'll make sure it's very, very safe. And so they'll have a bike lane for, like, one day. And it'll change the minds of how everybody imagines that public space for just one minute. And then they'll take it all back down. But it'll be a way to sort of like open up a conversation about how that public space could be used differently.
0: Right. Like um, when people were taking parking spots, remember? And yeah, And <laughs> turning exactly. them into mini green spaces. Yeah. And people would go, oh,
1: my gosh, well, what if we had green
0: space instead of uh, parking? So... Iobi though, so if I have an idea, something I want to do in my town, or oh, wouldn't this be a great park for kids, or wouldn't it be great if we could help these old people who are trying to cross the street? There's no pedestrian walkway for them and they're getting run over all the time, or whatever it is. Yeah. You go to the site and then there's a team of people that just come out of it and help you?
1: I mean, how does, <laughs> <laughs> how yeah, does that actually. work? <laughs> so there's a couple different user scenarios. So one is you might already know how to do everything. You might know how to work with City Hall. You might know how to raise all the money. And in that case, you can just log on to IOB and you can create a crowdfunding campaign and collect tax-deductible donations through that campaign and receive a single disbursement at the end. But Um, Maybe you don't actually know how to do any of this at all. And so you can just sort of submit your idea online and um, then somebody will reach out to you and give you a call and talk to you about your idea. And, you know, find out if you need a little bit of assistance on developing it. If you live in one of the cities where IOB has a long term partnership, which is Memphis, Detroit, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, you could meet one-on-one with an organizer in that city and they might coach you sort of like one-on-one through that process. If you live anywhere else in the U S you can talk to one of the success strategists that are with our team and they can advise you on certain steps you can take. Or we have a new sort of system in beta called the action core, where you can reach out to people who have done projects like the ones that you want, or they're expert in something and ask them for advice on developing out your project. And then everybody gets assistance on like making sure that they can reach their fundraising goal through their crowdfunding campaign, um, which is super important for us because the whole point of IOB is that like people who live in neighborhoods are really, really well-equipped to design solutions for their communities, but they're very under-resourced. And so for us, the primary objective is to make sure that resources and attention get paid to them.
0: Right. So if you have an idea, instead of then having to pitch up to God knows whom the federal government or something to trickle down money to an agency who's going to give money to a contractor's and give money to you. Mm -hmm. You're saying the people in the actual area. I mean, the crowdfunding happens. I guess a large percentage of it is people who are in the affected neighborhood. Who are they saying? Okay, look at that disused power plant. We want to turn this into an aquarium, you know, or whatever Uh it is it's the people in that neighborhood that would want to contribute to see that happen probably more than people living 3,000 miles away.
1: Yeah, most people who are contributing to campaigns live within about eight miles of the site.
0: Oh, wow. So yeah. it's got kind of hyper-local in that yeah. way. And then, I guess, successful campaigns, people who've run them and then built out the things, then they become part of the sort of community of advisors for the new people.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, so... IOB is really interested in building not just resources that go to make projects happen in place, but also a network of leaders who are there sort of like building up this movement. So far, we've seen more than 1,400 projects fully funded across the country. Mm. And for us, these people are now like fully expert in whatever it is that they've done, turning power plants into aquariums or turning vacant lots into like bookstores or whatever it is. They're probably the leading U.S. expert in that, whatever that is. And so we're really interested in figuring out ways that we can amplify those projects and use them to inspire other people to try something similar.
0: Right. Rather than just growing those projects, model them, let them be replicated, I guess, by others.
1: Yeah. And, you know... It's not actually always important if a project has permanence in place, right? The whole point of civic participation is it's about participation, right? It's not necessarily like if it's the best aquarium forever and it stays in place, but it's the idea of everybody in their community chipping in and working together to practice solving problems together. I think that's what builds social resilience. I think that's the important part about civic muscle that I think Americans are pretty bad at right now. Right. <laughs> right.
0: The idea being, I mean, even from a, and it doesn't even have to be this instrumentalized, but the idea that people who have converted a disused power plant into an aquarium are going to be better at dealing with an earthquake or a hurricane or something else because they've worked together, they know each other.
1: Yeah. And I think, yeah, the practice of working together to solve a problem like that also makes you more committed to the place that you live in. If you if you spend two years trying to make sure that like a sort of busy intersection in Jackson Heights to, is turned into a plaza, you have some vested interest in stewarding that place in the long term in a way that like, if you just got that grant from the city or from a foundation or something like that, there's not that same attachment to it, right?
0: Right. And the, even the way the locality will relate to it's different because then it's like some alien entity from the state or the government came in and installed something from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then the locals come out of their little their little shacks or whatever, their little hobbit holes, and look at this thing that's been put there rather than it being some organic output of the people themselves.
1: Yeah.
0: So how do you get a vision for something like this? How does something like this start? And then where does its money come from?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the stories that we've heard from the like 1400 plus leaders that we've worked with so far are that for the most part these are things that like have sort of been bugging and eating at people for a while. So like there's a project on Halsey Street in Bedstuy and one of the leaders of this project Tia said that she's been living across the street from this vacant lot her whole life. So she's almost 30 and she's just been staring down this vacant lot forever. And then like one day she just snaps and she's just like, I can't take it anymore. It's got to be something different, you know, or maybe it's the type of thing where it's a newer, more sort of like imminent threat to whatever you hold dear in the community, right? Um, a lot of the new like um, extreme cases of vacancy in Detroit sort of feel like that to people who've been longtime residents. And so, you know, I think some people have this sort of like long gnawing motivation and other people feel this like more acute recent one.
0: And in, I mean, in the in the meta way, though, how did you think up mm-hmm. doing this?
1: Yeah. And it was sort of a strange thing. Um, I'm one of the co-founders with two friends of mine. We all went to graduate school together. And I think we were- In what
0: kind of graduate school?
1: We went to the Yale School of Forestry together. Forestry? Yeah. And we all studied different things. Cassie studied climate change. Um, My friend Brandon, who's now my co-founder and COO, he studied natural resource management. I studied water economics. And all of us were really interested in the way that we we saw the way that Kiva and Donor's Choose were working, you know, Kiva has been around since 2004, Donor's Choose has been around since 2000, and they were just leveraging leveraging the tools of the internet to be able to dedicate resources to new things. And I think Kiva at the time, this was like 2007 when we thought up the idea, you know, at the time Kiva was super popular and people were very very motivated to give to these projects far away. And we were like sort of thinking if there's all these people who want to give to Kiva projects in places that they've never even seen before, would and we literally said out loud, like, wouldn't they be just as interested in giving to something in their own backyards? Um, and I think we were really interested in like the motivation of donors and why it's so interesting for people to like have this imaginary person that they're giving to that's like super far away when you could just actually do the same thing to make change in a place that's like right in front of your face, where you, you know, live, work, and play.
0: Yeah, I sometimes think about that when I look at, say, um, nothing against them, but like Gates Foundation, say. And I mean, it's a great thing to try to eradicate malaria in Africa. But it sort of negates the idea that, well, you're extracting a lot of value and time and data from this population right here. And you're not thinking about, you know, actually cleaning up your own mess. You don't actually look at your own nation as a place or your own neighborhood as a place that needs some social uh, uh, remediation.
1: I think it is a, a strange part of human nature where, you know, people are very, very interested in solving problems that about places that they know the least about. Um,
0: right. And then they <laughs> solve problems stupidly. You know, like, um, I mean... Uh, the The classic example of, you know, the company that was giving away a giving away a pair of shoes to poor people in a developing nation for every pair of shoes they sold. And what they didn't realize was the long-term effect of doing that was they were putting all the local shoemakers out of business mm-hmm. <laughs> during, yeah, during yeah. giving it's like, oh, well, that wasn't that one didn't work. Um, so it is that that sort of long distance we know better than you. Uh, uh management of of other people's resources I mean it's one thing to do micro loans is kind of great and mm-hmm. you know, let them participate in the global economy but uh, to to kind of dictate what they need is very different than kind of waiting for waiting for people to say what do they want facilitated.
1: And the point that you're bringing up is exactly the underpinnings of why we started IOB, right? Our foundational principle for starting this is that neighbors know what's best for their own communities, right? When you live in a place, you have this like intimate knowledge of the social fabric, and the physical challenges of the neighborhood. And that make you really really well equipped to actually solving those problems and in sort of standard community development you have a lot of people who are saying like well we have these federal grants and you know this this neighborhood meets all of these sort of demographic requirements of poverty so we're going to you know take these five tools to change it and it, it may not actually reflect at all what the neighborhood desires or thinks it needs of itself And I think for us, we're really interested in changing that power dynamic of, like, giving residents a leadership position in making decisions for their own communities.
0: And this should, at least theoretically, it should be a very red state friendly mechanism, right? Because this is what we want. This is what you want. This is. I mean, are you seeing I mean, I hate to even use the traditional labels of like progressive or conservative, but are you seeing projects emerge from, you know, people in places that are, you know, kind of Trump supporting, you know, uh, red state type people.
1: Yeah. I mean, all kinds of people use IOB, but the people who are most interested in using it are ones who feel like their local government is failing to serve them. So, yeah. So there's all sorts of people on the political spectrum who see a place for like stepping in and like doing for themselves that they feel like no one else is doing for them.
0: Right, local, local and personal responsibility,
1: yeah, totally.
0: and do you find people kind of find do they find teammates? do they find other I mean, do people it's not just putting up, okay, give us money. Mm-hmm. does the the posting of the project end up becoming a kind of a hub? For volunteerism and people participating as well?
1: Yeah. So there's a few things that make IOB different from other types of crowdfunding platforms. One is that you can sign up to volunteer. The other is that we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So all the donations are tax deductible, even if you're just an informal group.
0: And you're not going to get startup Boku bucks from it either.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that's true that's alright though the
0: <laughs> donors first uh, the, the the donors choose uh, what's his name uh, Charles Best isn't becoming a billionaire <laughs> off that either but he's doing a ton of good
1: yeah it's true so, but yeah I think you, your point is is like about building teams right So we have a lot of projects that come to us that are sort of like one person who's got this big dream for their community. And we see over and over and over again that projects that are led by two or more people are funded six times faster than those with only one. And people, Mm -hmm. even if they're fully funded and they're just one person, if they hit a small stumbling block in like permitting from the city or something like that, it's more likely that they're going to be waylaid for years in getting anything implemented. When you've got co-founders and you've got a team, you're able to build resources much faster. It's actually like one of our proven indicators of what makes a successful campaign.
0: So that's a good lesson even to people who aren't going to be using this platform. If you've got this idea, don't go it alone. Yeah. You know find partners.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think the other part of this, too, is like IOB is all about making sure that people are really reflecting the goals of the neighborhood. And when you see that sort of like lone wolf mentality when people are trying to make community change, it's usually a type of person who doesn't necessarily want the input of others.
0: Right. And that's well, and that's sort of a, a recipe for failure, too, I guess. It's hard though. You think you want to especially with the net. Oh, I can just sit with my laptop alone in my house and save the friggin' world, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally.
0: Doesn't quite It doesn't quite play out like that. I mean, the other thing, you know, we were noticing, Stephen was actually uh wrote this in his in his notes to me. Uh, you know, it, it, he lives in Jackson Heights and saw uh on the site that there're the number of projects there including the uh the play space on Seventy Eighth Street. I don't know if you're keeping track of all the. I guess you can't of everything that's on there. You know, it's where he shops. It is at his farmer's market, and and he was really noticing that these projects are all you know very human scaled. You know, the the Jackson Heights project rate raised uh, thirty four hundred dollars. Yeah. To initiate their whole project, you know, six years, you know, with hundreds of neighbors, you know, doing creating a public benefit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great, the Jackson Heights Green Alliance is a great case study because, I mean, first of all, you, when you're not an incorporated nonprofit, it's very hard to build resources from the beginning. The other thing about philanthropic funding is usually you have to have some to get some. And so for a lot of people, it's hard to get that first initial funding. So IOB plays this role of being sort of like that seed funding for a lot of people. So, you know, the Jackson Heights Green Alliance, over six years, they ended up raising tons of money they actually, like, purchased an adjacent lot to turn it into green space. That cost a lot of money. But, you know, like $3,400, $5,600 were the first campaigns. And then, you know, you can sort of take that and then use it as leverage to prove to other funders that you can responsibly use that funding um, and that you're going to, you know, implement what you say you're going to implement. We also see people using IOB to provide gap funding where you might have to raise two and a half million dollars for like a capital project and the state and city have funded a lot of it, but there's still like a little bit left. And so people can sort of fill in that last bit.
0: And there was something else I didn't actually fully understand it. But when when you talk about phase zero research. Oh, yeah. What's that? What does that mean?
1: Sure. It's um it's a little strange. So um, basically we started as a New York City pilot for two years and we worked just in the five boroughs from like 2010 to 2012. Um, And after a while, other cities started hearing about what we were doing, and so they would ask if they could use our platform. We didn't really have any staff or any funding, though, um, so we didn't want to have too many leaders to support. But after a while, we decided we would expand. And when we launched nationally in 2012, we also opened up our first office in Miami. And so we thought we would just, like, replicate what we did in New York there. Um, And it didn't work. You know, there are really different cities. There's really different contexts, different partners, different funders. And it just didn't have the right fit for it. Soon after, we launched our Memphis office, and it was wildly successful. And so we compared all the characteristics that made Memphis and New York really successful, but not Miami. And so we tried to put together these indicators of what we thought IOB's most important offerings were and what was meaningful to people And then basically developed a research phase before we open in a city to understand if, like, we're actually going to be useful to the people who live there. Before we opened our office in Detroit, we interviewed, I think, somewhere between like 65 and 75 Detroit residents to find out, do you need small scale funding? Do you want technical assistance? Do you need a fiscal sponsor or fiduciary for your work? Do you feel like you have enough support for your work? to find out if there was, like, a gap in services at the grassroots level. And there was. And so we're able to provide something there. But that might not be true for other cities.
0: But if you're just in wherever, in an unsupported city right now, you can still go to the platform. Oh, yeah. And then you just do a local campaign or put up some flyers on... on. Uh Telephone polls to get people to your to your fundraising site.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, or, you know, call them on the phone or send mm-hmm. them an email. And we have amazing projects in cities where we don't have staff like in Torrey, Utah. Um, residents were actually um, all the street lamps in their neighborhood were so bright that they ruined the view of the sky. They can see the Milky Way there. So they raised money to deinstall their street lamps which is super different from, like, another city where they might be raising funding to install street lamps, like in Highland Park, Michigan, where all of their street lamps were torn out at, under bankruptcy. Um, and so, like, all of these cities have different ways of approaching public right. space problems.
0: Right. Which is why it matters, you know, what what sort of launch you do and what sort of places, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're all, digitally, we're... we're prone to think about these sort of one-size-fits-all turnkey solutions for all of reality. You know, oh, what's the Uber of local fundraising? Mm -hmm. You know, and this is kind of the opposite. If you're going to do something that's based in, you know, supporting local realities, it's going to have different faces.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there is a project to, um, there was a historical museum in uh, northern Michigan and uh, the museum's roof got all beat up and so they needed to repair the roof And for this community, um, fundraising for them meant spaghetti dinners and people writing checks. And so, you know, like they got a bunch of spaghetti dinners together. They sent a bunch of checks to our office and they fully funded their campaign. They raised, I think, close to $50,000 to repair the roof of the museum. And that's super, super different than how somebody's going to raise money for a project like uh, Under the Elevated in Brownsville.
0: And you've also worked with some city governments, done civic crowdfunding for them
1: yeah so it was surprising to us actually that um, that we were going to be working this closely with governments, right? IOB was started as a tool for residents. Um, So it's always surprising to me as a co-founder, anytime governments are interested in working with us. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of city governments are really interested in using us as like a listening tool to understand more about what's going on in their communities. Um, So we've worked really closely with a few city agencies. We typically work with sustainability offices and resiliency offices, uh, but also like parks and department of transportation. But yeah, we were with the Los Angeles Great Streets program. They really wanted to have like a, a grant program to fund 10 great boulevards in Los Angeles. Um, and instead of just giving out grant money, they decided to run it as a match campaign on IOB. So they put up $10,000 in match funds to each of 10 intersections. And then those groups ran IOB campaigns to match those funds. And they're, they're really, really cool projects. And they were physical infrastructure projects on you know, public property redesigning the streets and streetlights and crosswalks. And they had to work with all the city agencies to do that. We did something similar with the New York City Department of Transportation, too.
0: I mean, it's unexpected, I guess, because they not that they should think of you as the enemy. But you're, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But you're an alternative force for civic change.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what I've learned over the past few years is that um, its it's really hard for a lot of city governments to do civic engagement well. And so I think a lot of them are really interested in trying new things to to try to reach and understand residents better. Some of them are more formal processes than others. I think one of my favorite stories is from Atlanta. A lot of IUB projects tend to happen without, like, a a technical permit for the projects. They're a temporary thing that's supposed to just sort of give a flash of an idea of change. And one of these was led by a leader named Ben Dom in Atlanta. He's an immigrant. He went to Atlanta to get his Ph.D. Um, He had previously lived in Paris, and he takes the bus everywhere. And in Atlanta, the bus stops just say bus stop. They don't tell you what bus or when it's coming or anything like that. And so one night, uh, he just decided he was going to raise, he raised $534 on IOB. He printed out 52 bus schedules for 52 different bus stops. He put them in little plastic bags and he zip-tied them to the bus stops. And so normally we were just sort of like, oh yeah, well, uh, we'll probably hear from the city of Atlanta telling us that they're going to slap them on the wrist and ask them to take them all down. And instead, the transit authority honored him for doing this, thanked him for raising awareness about the failures of their bus system, and then created a volunteer corps to be led by him called, the transit authority there is called the MARTA, and they called it the MARTA Army. And then all these volunteers all signed up to also like put paper bus schedules up at 2,500 bus stops across the region of Atlanta. And for me, that was a really interesting way of seeing that like city agencies, are so, like, so interested in understanding how to work with residents better that they'll even completely change their entire orientation towards a project like that and, like, you know, make him a hero instead of saying, stop messing with our bus lines."
0: Right. Instead of seeing it as someone calling attention to their failing. Right. Instead they say, oh, my gosh, we could just crowdsource our entire city to make our bus system better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And some, you know, some city officials, um, you know, tell us that they just like log on to the IOB page for their city and just go through and see what everybody else thinks is a problem. Um, See where other people are making investments and then double down on those investments. And it's different than what the city's priorities would have been otherwise. Or
0: also even just, you know, there's a lot of listeners. I get a a frequent email that I get is I want to make change. I want to make the world better. What do I do? You know. You could leave through Iob and see what other people are doing and <laughs> see if any of these things are appropriate for your town.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And, you know, I think that the, the projects that are out there, they've been tested once. Um, and they should be tested again in a totally different context. Something that works in Queens is not necessarily going to work in Brooklyn. Um, but it, maybe it could work in Wisconsin for some reason.
0: Are there tricks to when, you know... I mean, I appreciate the idea of projects being kind of one-off publicity, you know, uh, realizations, you know, physical manifestations of a vision. Imagine if the world was like this. Imagine if your city had this. Imagine if old people had this little escalator to take them to City Hall, whatever it is that you put in for a day or a week. Uh, It's a little bit, though, like burning man or something imagine what it would be like if we all just traded with each other and was nice and did psychedelics and dance in the desert and then they all go back and they're assholes to each other again at Google the next morning right <laughs> so what have you seen help one-off projects great demonstrations of social resilience what helps them permeate and move to the next level and be more than a than a one-hit wonder flash in the pan
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so I think that there's a few best practices. So one is to like, you know, while you're doing these types of things, you want to you want to be polite. You want to invite people into the process with you. Right. You don't want to just like magically transform everything, wait for people to go ah and then walk away. So you want to invite everybody in to participate with you because it builds buy in. You want to make sure that you're conforming to code. So you don't want to do something that sort of pop up and it looks bad or messy and seems sloppily put together because it'll confuse the public. But if it looks nice um, and it's like attractive, then people will be more interested in it. The other thing, you know, there's there's ways of making it fun. So like if it's an actual like transformation of public space. A lot of people say to, like, engage people in games or dancing or, like, music and, like, you know, twinkly lights and, like, make it fe- make it an, an experience, not just like a not just like a demo. Um, make it a whole experience that you're feeling.
0: So that people will say, why can't every Friday night be like this? Yeah. And then you say, hey, maybe yeah. you can. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I think you've got to let people really feel it. And things like press and things like that help a lot, too. Um, And then, you know, I think leverage. One of the things that IOB does is we can sort of show for leaders if they want a map of where all of their donors live, um, which can be kind of powerful if you're trying to convince like an elected official that people in your community care about something like this. You could say, oh, I mean, it's just these 7000 people in your zip code. Um, Just thought you might want to know. I think that that can be a very powerful change.
0: I mean, I like, I like the whole, the story of Iobi, the structure of Iobi, because it, uh, it's really consonant with the themes that I'm trying to put out in, you know, my books and Team Human and all to say that, you know, you're not technologists, you're friggin forestry majors, you know, who, who turn to technology really just to help rehumanize the urban landscape. Rather than, you know, and sort of deinstitutionalize it in order to break down boundaries and have people working together and kind of restore um, really a, a, not to get too new agey, but a kind of a forest-like, organic, natural connection between humans. You know, just to reorient people to that so they can then deal with the world in a different way.
1: Yeah, I mean... Real change is very importantly done in person, and when people come together to work on solving problems and give to each other and, like, make collective impact together, it makes a big difference. And I like to think of IOB as a tool for people to do that. A lot of governments think of us as a civic engagement tool for them to engage their constituents I think of IAOB is a civic engagement tool for residents who want to step up to lead to engage their neighbors in that process with them um, and inviting other people to have opportunities for participation.
0: Right. The means are the ends.
1: Yeah. I do think it's easy to forget this when you feel like maybe you have an idea for change and you're the only one who believes in it. You feel like you're sort of like in this uphill battle. I think it's easy to forget that most people jobs are kind of boring and they wish they had more opportunities to give back and they wish they had more opportunities to contribute and that inviting other people into doing what you care about can be a very, very inspiring opportunity for other people to like really connect with each other because it is very scary to lead change and to say, will you give $5 to this thing that I really care about? It is very intimidating to invite people into it. But a lot of people really want to have that opportunity, especially when it's on their block or in their neighborhood or on their commute to work, you know.
0: Yeah. That's something we're trying to learn here, actually. You know, it was really hard for us to even go on Patreon and ask people for, you know, five bucks a month or something to help, mm-hmm. you know, defray some of the costs. But really what we've got to do now is feel OK about asking people for their time. You know mm-hmm. who wants to help lead our community on our Slack? Who wants to lead discussions? Who wants to you know run a, a conversation about who should be guests on the show? Who wants to you know help uh, uh, help engage with the various meetups that people are doing for the show? You know rather than thinking that oh my gosh we can't uh, ask people to actually work or something, because it feels like, you know, like you're exploiting someone, but it's like, we're not making any money with this either. <laughs> so it's not exploitation on that level. Really, what we have to do is learn, I think, to kind of break down that that uh, uh, social inhibition about letting people in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think now more than ever, people really, really want a chance to do something meaningful to make big change. And, you know, there's a lot of noise right now, it's very very hard to cut through all the different things. There's a lot of petitions to sign. There's a lot of phone calls to make, but there's not that many opportunities to lead a Slack channel conversation about uh, you know like humans interacting with the digital world. Um, that's kind of a special opportunity,
0: right? Well, cool. Thanks so much for uh, for joining Team Human for playing for the team. It's uh, you're you're making real real strides and it's got to be gratifying to see so many things happen that may not have happened otherwise
1: it really is yeah. thank you so much for having me here
0: to find out more people just go to ioby. org, org. Mm-hmm. i-o-b-y in our backyard thanks so much for being on team human thank you you've been listening to team human our guest today was the founder of iob.org erin barnes We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolomé. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace.